know, I look at the journey of decades in doing this stuff and yep, a lot better off. Hasn't been easy. Still continues to be really hard. Still a human being and definitely worth doing that hard work. You're listening to Let's Be Omnist, the show where we are celebrating spiritual diversity, one truth, and one story at a time. I'm your host, Michael Anthony, spiritual life coach and intuitive reader from thedivinerlife.com. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8. Today, I am having a beautiful and extremely informative conversation with Ted Meissner, who you may know from his podcasts, The Secular Buddhist, or Present Moment, Mindfulness Practice and Science. Ted has been a Buddhist meditator and teacher since the early 90s and is a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. His organization, the Secular Buddhist Association, has been leading the secular Buddhism movement for quite a while, and that has led Ted to speak and be published across many different platforms. He's been on podcasts like Mindful Lives and The Whole Leader. He's given presentations to various groups about mindfulness, including the University of Massachusetts Medical School, as well as the Harvard Humanist Hub. And he's even been published in places like the International Journal of Whole Person Care and Perspectives on Psychological Science. Uh, He is certainly, like I said, very informative. And in this episode, he is going to talk us through the different types of Buddhism, the basic tenets and principles of Buddhism, and he also discusses how meditation can either help or hurt in the turbulent times of life. So go ahead and grab yourself a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a cup of whatever you like, because in the spirit of truth and honesty, here is my conversation with Ted Meissner. So thank you so much, Ted, for being here. I'm super excited to have you on Let's Be Omnist. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so, so wonderful to be here with you, Michael. I've really enjoyed what you've been putting together with the podcast. So very glad to be a guest. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. So I I have already kind of told everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do, but I would like to give them the opportunity to hear it from you. So why don't you tell everybody who you are, what you do, what's your thing? Sure. My name is Ted Meissner. I am a meditation teacher and IT guy, professionally. And, you know, those are very different hats. I was just having lunch with a friend yesterday, kind of going into, so how does that work exactly? And it's an interesting thing to be in because I like both aspects of the kinds of work that I do. Um, The way I got into that is I've been a, a, a corporate IT guy for decades in very large companies. And during that time, I've been a meditator. I started in the Zen tradition, and uh, moved into Theravada practice and eventually have become a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher uh, and Mm -hmm. do that on a regular basis. And so these two worlds came together a number of years ago where I was given the opportunity to teach mindfulness in my workplace and still do some IT work. And that's continued now for the past four or five years. And it's a really nice, interesting territory to inhabit and explore. I think that's super cool that you didn't just up and leave um, what I've lovingly learned to call a muggle job, like your everyday (laughs) job, um, and that instead you brought the meditation into the workplace. I think that's definitely a huge place that it's needed. 
Yeah, my evenings are spent at Hogwarts, but during the day, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the, the regular city. Oh, that's so great. So you, I want to talk all about like you being a meditation teacher and that path, but I also want to add a little extra fun layer to getting to know you. So we're going to play a quick game of two truths and a lie before we dive into all of the other fun stuff. Great. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and tell me your two truths and one lie, and I will do my best to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Item number one. I had a pet snake named Sally. Okay. (laughs) Item number two. I have a tattoo of the Rebel Alliance logo from Star Wars on my right shoulder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Item three. I have been employed as a wizard. Mm, As much as I want to say that that's the lie... I feel like it's the most obvious one. I'm going to say that your lie is the Star Wars tattoo. Wow, you're good at this. You are correct. That is the lie. Okay. I only said it because I feel like as much as I was like, oh, okay, IT world, Star Wars, I get it. I see the connection. (laughs) I'm learning more and more that people are really good at picking good lies. So I was like, that's the one that makes the most sense. I'm going with. <laughs> <laughs> if you saw my living room, you might not have chosen that one because oh, we have okay. Lego Star Wars stuff everywhere. Our the little subtle theme to our wedding was Star Wars. So okay. very well done. Good for you. Thank you. Can, can you please explain to me when you were employed as a wizard? Wizard. <laughs> so uh, many years ago, while I was in college. Uh, I was going to college in Northern Illinois, and I worked in summers at Renaissance Festival, just over the border in Wisconsin at what was Richard's Fair at the time. Uh, and I, my character was a wizard. And so my, my job title was Wizard, Crombiades the Younger. It's the character Ooh. name. And that was a lot of fun doing that and, and led to me then when I moved to Minnesota, being at the uh, Minnesota Renaissance Festival and working there for 20-some years. And that's where I would bring my dear pet snake, Sally, because we do hands-on at Como Cottage, and people would learn about snakes and reptiles and things like that. Years later, people remember Sally's name. They don't know mine, but boy, they remember the snake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you meet like a snake named Sally, and it's kind of difficult to... Hard to forget that. that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I got a little confused on that one because my husband used to have a cat named Snake. So when you said a snake (laughs) named Sally, I was picturing a cat named Sally. And I was like, wait, hold on. That's not what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I love that you have already mentioned like wizarding and Harry Potter more than once and Star Wars and all these like fun things because I think what we're about to talk about as far as mindfulness and Buddhism so many people think of it as something in the same world as like mystical and untouchable and out there, but the work you do seems to really bring it to earth. Can you just explain to us a little bit about how you would describe what mindfulness is exactly? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the, maybe the most important thing for people to know about the definition of mindfulness is that there isn't just one, Mm. that people mean mindfulness in a number of different ways. Uh, And so those in a, and maybe heritage Buddhists, for example, think of mindfulness 
as what is outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta in Theravada practice, which is mm-hmm. a, a very particular thing, and it's meant in a very particular way. And so there's some difficulty when we mean mindfulness a bit differently in a course like MBSR or other secular mindfulness program. And so the way I mean it when I'm teaching in a Buddhist context would be more of the satipatta, satipatthana variety, is that that mindful awareness of form, feelings, perceptions, uh, and phenomenon, stuff that happens in our lives. When I'm teaching a class like MBSR, I mean it in a very different way because it's a different context. And with that, it's uh, being aware of present moment experience with kindness and some gentleness. Uh, and, and often a definition people will hear is paying attention in a particular way with non-judgment. And sometimes mm. there's a, a bit of a hurdle with non-judgment. People I'm hard to will right think now. of that as <laughs> non-discernment. It's like, I, I, but I don't want to put my brain on a shelf and you don't have to. That's not what we mean. It's just the, there's often a reflexive judgment about what's going on in our, our bodies. There's an inner critic about our bodies, about our thoughts. I shouldn't be thinking this. This is terrible. Or, or some other, boy, you should really be thinking these horrible things. Mm-hmm. Our emotions. And we get very uh, valued, judgy about ourselves and others. And so this is about, let's attenuate. Let's limit that a little bit. Let's see what it's like to be curious and actually experience what's happening here rather than our thoughts or attitudes about it. And that's a practice, not a perfect. Oh, and yeah. And and mindfulness can also, uh, in addition to being a description of a portfolio of practices, formal meditations, for example, that we might do and informal things we might do mindfully throughout our day, like mindful eating or taking mindful walk. It's also the, uh, the state, what we're trying to condition we're trying to nurture so it's around it's just part of a regular way of being so there's a lot of different ways of thinking of mindfulness it kind of depends on who are we talking to and what's the context of our conversation yeah okay and i think that's very helpful because um i think especially for example in the like new age metaphysical community that i find myself in people toss around the word mindfulness and they don't think that many people pause to realize like oh well this person's talking about mindfulness in this sense this person and so it becomes that untouchable confusing um idea that they can't really pinpoint or figure out so that's very very helpful information speaking of you started off by saying like oh well if you're a heritage buddhist or if you're a secular buddhist like you're going to come to a different can you help us clarify a little bit um, on the subject of is there any one particular buddhism like how does buddhism get broken up into these different pieces yeah that's a great question so like with mindfulness there are many different definitions of that there are lots of different kinds of buddhism it's mm-hmm. been around for about 2600 years and so over that time as it spread throughout different cultures and societies and encountered with of course it merged with those became part of them so starting with something early buddhism uh theravada being one of the surviving schools from that period typically what they're adhering to is what's in the known as the pali canon p-a-l-i which is 
uh, a language what this is in. Uh, and then that, of course, spread throughout China, and there's Chan practice and Buddhism, and that made its way to Japan and became Zen. And so that's mm. another flavor. So generally speaking, you have, most people would say three. I'm going to make the case for four main branches of the Buddhist tree. One is Theravada. Kind of the old school is a rough way to look at that and entirely accurate, but close enough for large definitions. Can you clarify where that comes from? Theravada practice right now will be uh, most represented in Sri Lanka. For okay. example, it started in in India with okay. the Buddha and and has since uh, gone extinct, effectively okay. in its own uh, country of origin. So that's one branch. Uh, another branch is, and the, the wording here gets a little interesting um, because it's it's referred to as a greater vehicle. Uh, Mahayana. Okay. And that would include things like Zen, for example, would be a Mahayana. Mm. And that's to distinguish it from the lesser vehicle, which is how the greater vehicle folks referred to (laughs) (laughs) the other practices that they were separating themselves for. It's important to note there was a separation at some point here. And then another third branch uh, would be Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, uh, a kind of Mahayana, but is so distinct and unique because of its merging with the Tibetan Bon religion, native religion, that it's very different than what we might find in Zen, for example. Got it. So those are three main trees. And I would suggest that whatever phrasing you want to land on, how you might call it, I refer to as secular Buddhism. Others might see as something else is unique and distinct because its focus is very different than any of the others. That it's more about what we see and can know in the natural world, in our lives. So more of a, how do we know this is so today? What is your experience in your life? How is this helping here and now? And so questions of rebirth, for example, which are aspects of the other three, aren't really so much a focus here. And doesn't mean that secular Buddhists don't have ideas about that, but they may not match what the others think. For us, it can be a really great reflection on moment-by-moment experience. Mm. That in one moment, I'm in a hell realm (laughs) because (laughs) I am overwhelmed by anger, for example. And a few minutes later, I may be in a divine abode where I'm blissing out and feeling great. And I may have a rebirth a few minutes later, landing with my feet on the ground. I'm in the human realm and what that implies and that way of being, which is very different than the others. So there's still wonderful inspiration and things to learn and insights from all of the traditions. And with a secular Buddhist approach or this kind of looking about it, it's what does this mean in our lives today? I really... I'm stuck on this concept of rebirth into like your own personal hell moment or your own personal paradise moment. It's just so, that's such an interesting way to approach it. And I guess I'd never really considered the daily, every moment rebirth process that we're in. 
And so I'm just going to let that like steep in my mind for the rest of the day. (laughs) So you mentioned that like rebirth is a fairly common topic across Buddhism. Is there anything else that you would say is pretty standard across the board for Buddhism, no matter where it is? Yeah, there are us Buddhists love our lists. And so we have <laughs> lots of lists of things. There are sites about lists of Buddhist lists. <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, there are core values that we all share. And of course, there are disagreements about what is meant by the, the details of mm. these things. Is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And these are inclusive of each other. And the Four Noble Truths... And this this first one is like, boy, this is a hard sales pitch. <laughs> Life is suffering. And many of you may have heard of that as part of Buddhism before. And mm-hmm. as a, a contemporary secular Buddhist, I would see that and do see that as um, stuff happens in life. It's not always uh, rainbow farts from unicorns and happy puppy tails. It, bad stuff happens too. That's also yeah. part of life. The second noble truth is suffering happens. Our experience of what's going on in life is because of our our craving, our attachment, our holding on to wanting what we don't have and not having what we do want. Hmm. So there's there's a dissatisfaction that comes from how we're meeting what's in the world is how I would view that. Okay. The third noble truth is, ah, but wait, it's not all bad news. There is the possibility for it not being that way. We're not stuck. Okay. There can be another way of encountering life and and, and rebirth, for example. And then the fourth noble truth is, and the way we do that is through our own efforts of the Eightfold Path. And then there's a eight different kinds of things that you do and ways that you are to get to that. Oh, it doesn't have to be this way. The suffering is let go of and, Oh, great. Then I'm in what people might consider. And again, you want to call it enlightenment or Nirvana or Kensho or any number of very different ways that Buddhists have different views about it. It's the way Buddha described it, they teach one thing, suffering and the extinguishing of it. Mm. That's something we all hold in common at its most basic level. Ending suffering is what this is about. That is so needed, (laughs) I think. And I love that you, you described it in a way that I was expecting. You said four noble truths and I was ready for this quotable, like word by word, this is what it is, because I think uh, in my experience of the Four Noble Truths before this moment, was very almost like the Ten Commandments or like, it, it, this is what it is. Right. You say it this way, it is worded this way, it is number one through ten. Um, but you described it in such a casual, nonchalant way that I'm really surprised that it's not something that more people are digesting on like a regular basis. I think part of it is that people are they are digesting it. They do understand it. And when you put it into terms of stuff happens uh, and I'm, I'm not happy about it because I wanted it to go a different way. Mm-hmm. That's the first two truths. 
And then the wondering, so is it stuck this way? I'm like, no, it isn't. And here's a way to, to meet that and work with that. That's very human. And that's mm. not limited to Buddhists. That's a description. The reason I think the Four Noble Truths can resonate with people is that it's a description of what it's like being a human being and not just a human being animals run into this as well right so the hard part comes in at noble truth number four which is like doing so what do i do (laughs) what do i do what action do i do (laughs) that automatically leads me into i don't know if it's super complicated to explain but like what is this eightfold path that you've mentioned more than once so the eightfold path again remembering lists it's maybe easiest to think of these in they're chunked out into three parts. Okay. One is how we look at things, our, our insights, and that's right view, right intention. And I'll come back to the meaning of right in a minute. <laughs> so how we see things, right view, right intention. The second part is our, our behaviors, what we do in the world, right speech, mm-hmm. right action, right livelihood. And I'll unpack those in a moment. And the third part is, if we want to call it concentration is often how it's said, but that's a particular thing within it. I call it reflection, our effort, our mindfulness practice. And again, there's that word, something by that and concentration practice. Like how can we do the others if we can't stay on task for a few moments? Well, there are ways to work on that. Okay. So that's the the ballpark. And, and basically it's, you know, stuff happens and we're going to imperfectly meet them. And our intention is to do the best we can to not cause harm to others, to do things that are of benefit to self and others really in an authentic way, not with the hidden agendas, what we might call the in Buddhist tradition, they're near enemies and far enemies like love and hate. Those are far enemies that are really opposite of each other. Okay. But a near enemy to love might be smothering ownership or possession, often mistaken for that. So these are also part of Buddhism as, no, 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 look closely. It's not necessarily what you think, which is where some of that insight practice stuff comes in that we do in formal meditation and then bringing it off the cushion about the rest of our lives, not just that formal time. Okay. That's still more things that I'm just going to let steep in my brain throughout the day. And so that that's all part one. And that's all. That's the eightfold path. Is oh, that's insight, behavior, okay. and reflection. Those three parts contain right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Got it. Okay. I understand. I, for some reason, took those like right concentration and all of that and the thought that they were just extra descriptors you were using but i see i got it okay yep. i didn't those count are, i should have counted yep, those are off. particular steps and the use of the word right sama is sometimes that's again one of those words that can be a bit of a, a stumbling block a little bit of a speed bump it's like boy that seems like a here are my written in stone mm-hmm. kinds of things and, and right is a again what is beneficial to self and others what is it that does not cause harm to self and others and that's not a 
well, it's this exact thing. It's what's the situation? It is contextual. Mm. So I'm sure there are people are listening to this or running into times where, you know, you might say one thing in one situation, you might say it very differently in another situation. Right. So what's right in this situation, knowing that each moment is unique. And that's part of our practice is that recognition of the uniqueness of this moment. I got this really funny flash in my mind of a little kid who asks their parent, like, but you told me that I'm supposed to do this. And the parent <laughs> yeah. is like, no, 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 like totally different situation. Um, so that, that definitely makes sense to me. And it's just funny to think about how that's something that we approach our entire life. I right. think that's why I, I went there was like uh, starting from a little kid, you start to learn not every situation, the same answer happens for the right. same thing. Um, it's and I complex. Think, and, and in, we always want to have an easy button. We want mm-hmm. to be able to encapsulate this in 140 characters, put it on a tweet and life is perfect. And we're averse to mm-hmm. the, the three little words. I don't know. That has Hate been coming up for me so much this week. That little phrase, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, man, I did not, <laughs> did not expect it to go there. Um, that's a whole other thing that I could unpack. But I do want to ask you about the part of the Eightfold Path as far as um, right concentration. And you were talking about like trying to maintain your focus. So is that where meditation comes in? To the yeah, the formal practices are typically put into that that category, the Eightfold Path. Uh, and the concentration practices, we might think of awareness of breathing as a concentration practice where you have some experience and you're attending to that. You're paying attention to it. You're experiencing it. Thoughts are going to come up. Sounds may distract you and as best you can, letting those go coming back to your experience of the breath is just one meditation. And Mm. bearing in mind, the breath might not be a comfortable place for some people to bring attention to. It might be something very unpleasant for them. So particularly with trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and I just want to shout out here to my friend David Trelevin, who is just a wonderful teacher and researcher on this, is, again, your experience, your background, your life is unique and how you meet these different formal practices. Pay attention to how you're doing. Take care of yourself. That's an important part of this too. And so it's not, I have to do this particular meditation because that's what a book says. Like, well, you may need to adjust because mm-hmm. you're a person and let's honor what your place in this is. It doesn't mean you don't challenge yourself or run into difficulties. That's going to happen too. But is there something else you might use as concentration? Maybe it's having your eyes open and just a soft gaze of whatever's in front of you. Maybe it's listening to sounds. That attentiveness, like when you're listening and it's quiet, there, that, that's just as good and helpful as a mindfulness of breathing might be for others. Got it. So the same way that we've talked about how everything else is diverse and varying and person to person meditation practice in and of itself is also just as diverse as the people meditating, I guess you would say. Yeah. And there can be lots of different kinds of meditation. And if I'm sitting in a meditation hall 
and I'm next to someone who has a very different view about what the particular practice that we're both doing. We're both doing a mindfulness of breathing exercise. We may have different ways we're doing this. One may, uh, someone may be counting their breaths. Others may be feeling sensations. Others may be doing visualizations. Those are all different ways to do the same practice. And we may have different intentions behind it. Why are we doing this? For one, it might be, I want to learn how to look back into past lives. Or for another, it might be, you know, just the base awareness helps calm me down when I'm being overwhelmed by anxiety because I have PTSD. Mm. what is most relevant to you where I, I get a little, I push back when there's no, it has to be done exactly this way. And it's this intention only, you know, not everyone is in that circumstance for some it's I'm trying to cope with mm. difficulties that others may not understand. And so how do we enable that? That's still within our path of ending suffering. That definitely makes a lot of sense. I know that one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is kind of like how, or is meditation necessarily for everybody? Um, but it sounds like you've, I, it sounds like you've said yes, but also maybe no. Like, I don't. Yeah. No, it's a great question because this comes up quite a lot. Uh, when I do a mindfulness-based stress reduction program, it's an eight-week program and teach this live online and sometimes in person, uh, there's an application process. It's not just you register and you're in. There's an application, and we get to know you and what things are like for you right now because the program, it might not be the right time to do this. Mm. It's not that it can't be helpful to you, but is it the right time? What are you running into? If it's like, well, right now I have severe untreated depression. I just lost an, an immediate family member and I'm feeling horribly overwhelmed. This might not be the right time for you. Or it might be if you have a therapist and they're supporting this and you have a strong interest in doing it and maybe a little bit of practice so you know it's helpful and you need that structure to be helpful to you in reducing or ending your suffering great so it's it really depends on what are the circumstances for that individual which is why we ask and check in and when that doesn't happen there are many people who may have not just difficulties and challenges of course that's part of it yeah but when you become overwhelmed or dysregulated and can't function then it's Maybe something you shouldn't do and find something else. That's perfectly fine. With the trauma-sensitive mindfulness, if people are starting to feel overwhelmed and we work on practices of just checking in, how are you doing? Then there are ways to make adjustments. Choose a different object of meditation. If breathing isn't it, listening to sounds. Maybe just guiding your attention to the bottoms of your feet, contact with the floor. Mm. Maybe opening your eyes. Maybe... Getting up and watching a show on Netflix might be the right thing for you right now because what's happening is not helpful to you. So we need to have different options available to people based on what they're experiencing. Uh, you have just totally changed a lot of things for me, one of which is from now on when I'm watching Netflix, I'm going to say that I'm meditating. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second thing is I... Uh, especially last year, I want to say even maybe over the last two years in the 
um, what I lovingly refer to as like the light not worker uh, community, which means like people who say they're what is what's called a light worker, but they're really not doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this whole concept of spiritual bypassing, which is yeah. like, uh, you know, I'm going to say it's fine and it's fine. And like, Oh, I'm just going to meditate on it. Like people toss around these words so casually right. and to hear you, someone who teaches mindfulness and like has been doing this for quite a while to hear you say, listen, if you just went through a serious trauma, if you're not receiving actual support through therapy, therapy or support. something else, right. like this probably isn't the best time to just jump into something. Right. Um, I think that that's something that is so necessary to hear because so many people think I'll just meditate on it and I'll be fine. Right. But if you are going into this meditation space, if you're just alone with your thoughts for a moment and they're not exactly what you need to be hearing right now, yeah. probably not a good idea. So yeah, your thoughts may be the inner critic screaming at you or you're having the experience of flashbacks um, Mm. from traumatic events. This is what we want to not get people lost to outside of their, uh, their window of tolerance for this. And so it's very important for meditation teachers, mindfulness teachers, those in, in Buddhist circles that are uh, leading groups, you're likely to have with this, depending on the size of your group, up to seven to ten percent or more of the people in your groups may have not just experienced trauma, but have progressed into having traumatic symptoms or even post-traumatic stress disorder. It may have gone that far. And so how do you meet that? Uh, Willoughby Britton is a researcher from Brown who uh, I'll, old friend, and we'll be interviewing her for one of my podcasts coming up about Cheetah House, which is a place that she has set up for people who have had severe dysregulation from contemplative practice hmm. and how they're helped through that. So it's not to scare people away from meditation. For most people, meditation is just fine and particularly done in the right way with a good teacher whose concerns are about your well-being. That's the most important thing. Right. And finding the right time. So there really is, you're contemplating starting contemplative practice. (laughs) There are a few things to know that might be helpful to you to make sure you're getting out of it what you want to get out of it and actually you get out of it some things you might not want to get out of it that nonetheless are helpful to you yeah that definitely makes sense and i think it's again one of the biggest reasons that i was so excited to specifically talk to you about buddhism is because you do you are all about secular buddhism and i think that that to me just implies that it is very real world it is something that you can't just like spirited away you can't just (laughs) wrap it up in something beautiful and pretend that it's not work um i think secular buddhism really brings it to like listen there's also work that comes with this you have to have a holistic approach to it and i think that's super super important for people to hear um i do want to ask you i don't even think i started the show with this which i usually do how did you find buddhism like what brought you here so as the listeners may know, I've been able to ask that question myself for a little over 10 years now, my own <laughs> podcast to the, to the guests. And I'm like, how did you come to this? 
And for many, in fact, I'd say for most people, they've come to it through suffering. Uh, the standard coping mechanisms that they've had in place just were no longer handling what was going on and they needed something else. Uh, so that's how many people come to the practice. For me, it was noticing that I was having difficulty with concentration. Uh, and I was told at the time, oh, I, you know, I heard meditation is, is good for that. And there's a place that teaches meditation. Mm-hmm. And so I went there and, and at the time, it was a long while ago, it was a Buddhist center because we didn't really have any other place to do this. And it was just a, a 10 minute silent meditation. It was just quiet, no, no guidance. You got a little bit of instruction beforehand, no guidance. And it was the hardest 10 minute meditation I've done in my lifetime was that first one because I'd never taken a look inside at what's going on in my head. Mm-hmm. And that hamster, that hamster is, he's tied into the speed force. He's going really, really, really fast. <laughs> and that was very jarring. Mm. And fortunately, a, a very good teacher uh, there. It's like, you know, I, I said I felt like I was going to crawl out of my head. And they replied, maybe not. And that helped normalize the experience that I was having that, no, you know, I'm still sitting here. <laughs> it's just me. I'm still breathing. I'm sitting with a few people that I don't know doing this. Okay, there's that too. It's not just getting caught up in the hamster wheel. And so that seemed, okay, okay, there's something here, and I don't really know what, but I kept with it. And eventually, it became, a, a in the Zen tradition, of Doan, someone who rings the bell for meditation. So I get an, you know, an hour and a half of practice time in the evenings and weekends and practice on my own. And what kept me in this was, in addition to it helping with concentration, I was able to stay on task a little bit better, mm-hmm. uh, was noticing things about myself that needed to change that I could no longer avoid looking at. The spiritual bypassing you've mentioned, we've done several episodes on that because it's such a common thing mm-hmm. to have a really good concentration practice. So, I, boy, I can move my concentration off my crap and not really look at it so well, that's a danger. That's a risk with doing one kind of practice is you don't see your own stuff. Yeah, You need to see your own stuff, and I certainly need to see my own stuff and still do. That's an ongoing practice. And I, you know, I look at the journey of decades in doing this stuff, and, yep, a lot better off hasn't been easy, still continues to be really hard, still a human being, Mm. and definitely worth doing that hard work because it's enabled me to to change little by little and with stumbles along the way how I am in the world. Got it. I think you saying that that first 10-minute meditation was jarring is so important for people to hear. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I think a lot of people think you hit a meditation mat for the first time and it's like, oh my gosh, everything's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Bliss, you're here. Yeah. But like that first one, I think is absolutely supposed to be the hardest. I think if it's not the hardest, then I don't think that you're progressing in the way that you should, right? Like it's... 
it may be the hardest that first time. It may be that after you've you've been doing this for many, many years and you run into now your your awareness and receiving what's going on has opened you up to maybe some unpleasant truths about yourself and seeing mm. that makes these years later, oh boy, these are the really hard ones because now I can't not see the dirty laundry and the dirty dishes in the sink and I got to roll up my sleeves and do some stuff. Not to go back to like another funny thing that popped into my head, but I pictured uh, meditation almost like a video game. Like the first level, (laughs) you think it's really hard because you just started, you don't know what you're doing yet. And you're like, okay, now if I replayed that, it would be easy. But now I'm introducing all these other extra things and I have to figure it out as I go. And so, yeah, I think that's interesting that it doesn't necessarily get harder. It's that the things that you're presented with get a little bit more complex and a little bit more intense as you get deeper and deeper into like who you are. Yeah, they can. And everyone's, everyone's encounter with this is different and, Mm -hmm. and change over time. I had someone email me at this point a long time ago and they're asking, you know, you've been doing this for so long. What, what makes you keep doing it? Cause I've been doing the same meditation for <laughs> 10 years and I don't want to, I'm just, I'm not doing it anymore. So why do you do that? And for me, it's been noticing and really getting in touch with the uniqueness of each moment of being curious about how this, not just this sit is different than anyone else because the, the light conditions are different. The temperature is different. What I had to eat last night is different. How I'm feeling about what's going on in general is different and unique, but this very breath is unique. And as I'm experiencing it more widely, more deeply, more comprehensively, that's all the fascination I need to continue to do this is that, wow, this is really interesting huh, I didn't know that. (laughs) And that makes it something that's worthwhile doing because of the changes then that happen off the cushion. Mm. So for you, it's almost like you've been doing this long science experiment where the meditation is the constant and everything else is changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I really, um, I encourage people strongly to listen to your show (laughs) Um, and to follow you and see what you're doing because I think that there's so much more that we can't unpack in just a short hour that is super important. Um, So if people do want to follow you, learn about your work, become your new best friend, what is the best way for them to keep in contact with you? Probably the two two places I'm going to suggest. uh, Each is a website. One is, uh, particularly for folks who are listening to this, there's uh, secularbuddhism.com org okay and remember go to the org one that's mine because there's also another podcast in this territory that uses something else so this is secularbuddhism.org and there's a lot of stuff there we have a practice circle that meets a couple times a month that's live online so if you want to try this you're welcome to join us there and a number of other things we do that are on that website and then the other place for uh, my the teaching I do with secular mindfulness programs is presentmomentmindfulness.com. And there are also lots of podcasts on that. I think I, it's uh, episode 150 is <laughs> coming out <laughs> this weekend. And that's the one that's the new one. So 
yeah, <laughs> take a look at that. You might find something interesting there as well. Cool. All right. Um, before I let you go, I do want to ask you in your years of experience and all that you've done, if you could boil all of that down into like one piece of advice or like one last thing you'd like to leave the listeners with, what do you think that that would be? Be gentle with yourself. Take your time. Just right. that. I love that. I, I am honestly surprised at how often I ask this question and that's a very similar answer. So I think that that's <laughs> kind of the message of the show at this point. I love that. Well, thank you again so much for being here. I appreciate you being on the show um, and I look forward to talking with you in the future. Thanks so much for having me here, Michael. Thank you so much. All right, all right. That was my conversation with Ted Meissner. Ted certainly opened my eyes to the importance of being present in my day-to-day life, and I really appreciate him helping me to understand my own meditation practice on a deeper level. So thank you again, Ted, for being my guest today. If you want to check out Ted's work, make sure that you head over to his website, secularbuddhism.org. That's secularbuddhism.org. Or you can check out his podcast, The Secular Buddhist. While you're out there adventuring the internet, make sure that you take some time to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can find me at The Diviner Life. And of course, make sure that you subscribe to Let's Be Omnist so that you don't miss out on brand new episodes. Like the episode that I am releasing next week where I will be chatting with Shauna Williams, author of the brand new book, The Spiritual Magic of a Queer Person of Color. Thank you for listening. Remember to share with your meditation teacher, your favorite Buddhists, or your local monks, or whoever else that you may come in contact with today. Please don't forget that I love you, I appreciate you, and until next time, be true, be you, be ominous. <laughs>